if a woman can understand how she feels on different days of her cycle, then she can start dialing and be more personalized when they're training. You know, when the hormones are low, this is where women have more power, more speed, recover better, have more, quote, mojo because they have less central nervous system fatigue. Around ovulation with that boost of estrogen, some women feel bulletproof and other women feel a little bit flat. And then a couple of days later, they'll feel bulletproof. So understanding that as well. And then when you get into the high hormone phase with estrogen progesterone being the highest, this is where we want women to deload more where they're working functional technique and they're not doing too much high intensity. They're not trying to do top end VO2 work because physiologically you're fighting your body because there's so many different metabolic and um, thermoregulatory and, and metabolic shifts that happen with the hormones. It's really hard to do that high, high intensity in the high hormone phase. Hello and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This week's episode is the first in a series of Pursuing Wild Health episodes that I'm publishing in collaboration with Dr. Mike Mallon and Dr. Matt Dawson of the Wild Health Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about them, you can take a listen to episode 172 of the podcast, or check out their own podcast on iTunes or other podcast platforms. It's called Wild Health. We will continue to publish more of these collaborative episodes in the near future, and make sure to stay tuned for a big announcement about the future of pursuing health in the new year. So in this episode, we sit down with Dr. Stacy Sims, who's a PhD researcher who's dedicated her life to understanding sex differences in training and nutrition and helping women learn to use their physiology to their advantage. Stacy earned her PhD in environmental exercise physiology and sports nutrition from the University of Otago in New Zealand, and from there she began work as an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist at Stanford University, where she specialized in women's health and performance. And while she was there at Stanford, she had the opportunity to translate some earlier research into a science-based layperson's book called ROAR, How to Match Your Food and Fitness to Your Unique Female Physiology for Optimum Performance, Great Health, and a Strong Lean Body for Life. Currently, Stacy resides in New Zealand with her husband and her daughter, where she's a senior research associate at AUT University, a featured speaker, and she teaches women how to work with their physiology through her courses. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited. This is our first Pursuing Wild Health episode. So I'm here today with Dr. Mike Mallon from the Wild Health Podcast, who will be my co-host today, and then Dr. Stacey Sims, who we are both super excited to talk to about all things female physiology and how women are very unique and different and how there's so much that we can do to optimize for our health and for our fitness. Um, and so I just first want to say thank you for coming on. And this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. And it's something that I've been really frustrated about going through medical school, um, and residency, just the limited information that we get for helping women and how the answer always seems to be take a birth control pill for almost every symptom that women come in with. And there's really so much more underlying it. And in the past, um, in a recent episode, I actually interviewed Dr. Marguerite Duane about 
fertility awareness-based methods and all the information that you can learn from tracking cycles, which just isn't really talked about much in mainstream medicine. Um, and I actually first heard about you, Stacey, through um, Mike and Matt Dawson of Wild Health and some of the other people there. And since then, it seems like I'm hearing your name everywhere. I've had a lot of pursuing health listeners writing in and telling me about your book. And so um, I'm just excited to be here and have this conversation today. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks I, for I having didn't. me. I did not know that you heard about Stacy through us talking about her stuff. I did. That's yeah, because everyone <laughs> is recommending her book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and see, we and just to reiterate, <laughs> yeah, seriously, uh, and just to reiterate what what Julie's saying there. I mean, man, I didn't learn any of this stuff in medical school, and it just blows my mind that um, that that you know maybe this knowledge wasn't even there, you know, 12, 12 15 years ago, um, maybe seventeen, eighteen. <laughs> We're not doing any math here. No, no math here today. Um, but I, I just want to take a minute and sort of address the elephant in the room, which I feel like uh, is me. Um, <laughs> honestly, um, I feel like this podcast uh, and your research is, is equally as important uh, for male listeners out there, whether they're physicians, trainers, husbands, brothers, really everybody is touched by women's health uh, in their lives. And personally, as a physician, armed with the knowledge that I've gotten from, from your books and the podcasts that you've been on, I truly believe that I engage in conversations with my female patients that I wouldn't have otherwise had uh, because I wouldn't have known to have them and maybe that they wouldn't have been comfortable to ask me about. So thank you so much for all the hard work that you've done. I do feel like that everything you've done has been a very powerful, made for very powerful change in medicine in general. So thank you. Oh, thanks. And you're not the elephant in the room. I'm excited that there are men talking about it too, um, because a lot of people like kind of pigeonhole women's stuff into women talking about it. But the bigger the conversation is, and the more people that are aware, the better it is. So, thanks for being a dude that's interested in all this too. <laughs> Absolutely, of course, I'm interested in it. Well, um, maybe we can start with um, talking a little bit about kind of your background. I know you're an athlete yourself. Um, how did you first become interested in, in women's health and performance? What, what was that story? Oh, the driving factor was, see, this is where I don't want to do the math way back in undergrad. <laughs> I was on the crew team and um, just a lot of the things weren't making sense. Like you, the taper program and gearing up for a race, it would always work for the men. But then the lightweight women's boat, things, they just weren't the same. There are different points where we were getting sick and the men weren't, and the men were progressing, the women weren't. And it just didn't make sense. And at the same time, I started my undergrad and looking at all these studies that were happening in sports nutrition and biomechanics, and I'd ask questions about, well, how does this apply to women? You just told me the Q angle is wider, so how does that affect running mechanics? And like, oh, it doesn't. It's like, well, it has to, and no one had those answers. So that was the, like, when you're 18, you think you know everything, you're like really angry. And it just kind of carried through everything. So, yeah, that was a, the turning point, I think, was really, and I, I've talked about this before, um, a metabolism lab where it just happened to fall in two different phases of my cycle. And so the results were really different, but they were the same for men. So they threw my results out saying, oh, it must be an anomaly. And I was like, it can't be an anomaly. It just can't be an anomaly. Like there are women across the board who are doing similar things and how can you just throw results out? Uh, so that was, that was a really big tipping point for me. Wow. And you, you're known for saying women are not small men. So what are some that you talked about how we just 
hadn't had a lot of research with women, especially in sport before, but what are some of the reasons why you don't think this has been talked about much until recently? Well, there's a long history of the marginalization of women in all society. So, you, you know, you look all the way back at when Western medicine started and originally it was like the women that were doing all the herbal care and taking care of all the kids and the men and that kind of stuff before there was westernized medicine and then became very patriarchal. So women kind of got pushed to the side as practitioners as well. And then when they started really looking at what's going on, it was the men that were in those circles. And so they started experimenting on each other. And then as we start progressing through history and looking at it, women were still marginalized and thought to be very delicate flowers. And they couldn't participate in hard sport or hard activity or medical research because they were too delicate. And then when we look at a, a cost means for more modern research, you don't get a lot of money to do research. And so they want to make it most time efficient as possible. So if they're taking women into account because our menstrual cycle affects things, oral contraceptive pill, IUD, perimenopause, menopause, all that becomes quote, too complicated. So women are excluded and it's just been the same. And I mean, even now, last week, I read a new article that's put out in a sport nutrition um, journal and they said it was 20 white men and they didn't include women because it was too difficult to control for the menstrual cycle. I'm like, how did this pass mm. you? So it's still ongoing. As many as the conversations are happening and there's more and more mandate for women to be included, there's still stuff that's out there that's just excluding women. Can we talk? Can we talk a little bit about the the general differences between um, between men and women? And maybe we can start with kind of like the physiology of the female hormone phases and and what that looks like. Yeah, but it starts even before that. I mean, inherent sex differences at birth. That's why you have XX or XXY or XY. I mean, from mitochondrial development, the proteins for oxygen uptake and fat metabolism. Um, to fast twitch and slow twitch fiber enzymes and activity. So all of that comes into play and becomes that discernible point at puberty. And this is where you really start to see the sexual dimorphism when it's happening at puberty, where the girls will get wider hips, wider um, shoulder angle, put on belly fat, put on boobs and their period starts. But then the boys, they lean up, they get more aggressive. And this is like that really discernible point where it becomes really important to start having those conversations of how sex hormones affect us, both boys and girls. And then as we get into more of the settled of your menstrual cycle, and we know that the first two weeks in a textbook, so usually we say a textbook cycle is about 28 days, but day 12 to 13 is the mid-cycle with ovulation. So the two weeks leading up to ovulation where the hormones are relatively low, this is where women are more like men. So if you see research experiments going on, most of the time if they include women, they'll have women there because it, it reduces the confounding variables. After ovulation, when estrogen and progesterone both start to go up, every system of the body is affected from cognition to respiratory rate, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, plasma volume, red cell count, um, pain tolerance, all of these things change when estrogen and progesterone come up. And then when they drop down again and a woman gets her period, that's when things start to become, well, women are more like men. And because it is a little bit complex and people are really still understanding how estrogen and progesterone affects so many different things, 
it just compounds the factor of, of why we really need to look at women being different from men, but yet in some regards, people are like, but then you're being very exclusionary, but I'm not, I'm looking from a physiological and a biological standpoint that we don't know enough about women to say all of these things that, that so many people say from medication dosage to concussion recovery to just basic nutrition aspect for athletes. And, and what are some of those specific things that women should consider when they're thinking about training within those different cycles? Um, we talk about tracking our cycle for more than just understanding where those hormones perturb. Because if a woman can understand how she feels on different days of her cycle, then she can start dialing and be more personalized within the training. You know, when the hormones are low, this is where women have more power, more speed, recover better, have more, quote, mojo because they have less central nervous system fatigue. Around ovulation with that boost of estrogen, some women feel bulletproof and other women feel a little bit flat. And then a couple of days later, they'll feel bulletproof. So understanding that as well. And then when you get into the high hormone phase with estrogen progesterone being the highest, this is where we want women to deload more, where they're working functional technique. They're not doing too much high intensity. They're not trying to do top end VO2 work because physiologically you're fighting your body because there's so many different metabolic and um, thermoregulatory and, and metabolic shifts that happen with the hormones. It's really hard to do that high, high intensity in the high hormone phase because you just can't get there without some kind of intervention. Are there specific um, methods that you like for tracking cycles or specific, um, specific signs that you think are important for women to be tracking, like temperature or just looking at days? Um, yeah, it's, it can be very complex and really simple. You can either like mark on a calendar with this little star, like the days of your period, and then you can kind of see how long your cycle is and give an estimate. So that's like the basic, um, you can go a little bit step beyond and do basal body temperature and ovulation predictor kit to dial it in. You can use the various apps like wild AI, um, fitter woman clue. Uh, flow, all of these work on tracking and understanding and then telling you what, what phase you're in. I think of those, only Wild AI uses artificial intelligence to learn how you are in your cycle and can make recommendations on that. So yeah, it depends on if you're just old-fashioned pen and paper, which is absolutely fine. I'll put my hand up on that one. I have a paper <laughs> calendar. All the way through to really being a data nut and understanding, well, if I put all this information in, then the algorithm is going to learn me and I'll be able to get more information back from the app that I'm using than I can keep in my head or on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. That's great. What about specific um, uh, macronutrient profiles and like micronutrient changes between the luteal and the follicular phase? Are there any recommendations that you have for women there? Yeah, so when um, we're in the low hormone phase, your body uses, accesses, and stores carbohydrate really well. We also don't have as much of a catabolic uptake, so we don't have to have quite as much protein. But once you hit ovulation and estrogen and progesterone start to rise, estrogen inhibits the body's ability to access carbohydrate very well or store it. It uses more free fatty acids. And progesterone is very catabolic. so it breaks down a lot of lean mass. It breaks down a lot of um, 
of your fatty acids as well, because the whole job of progesterone is to increase total energy availability to build the uterine lining. So when estrogen and progesterone are up, we wanna look at increasing our carbohydrate intake in and around all of our training sessions, and definitely putting a precedence on protein and even protein dosing through every meal so that we keep an elevation of amino acids going to help essential nervous system fatigue, to help with lean mass development, but also counter some of the um, breakdown or the catabolic effects of progesterone. Okay. What about, um, what about things like hydration, for example? I remember you saying, re- saying in your book that um, hydration becomes a bit of an issue towards the luteal phase, correct? Yes, uh, we lose uh, about 8% of our plasma volume, which doesn't seem like a lot. It's about 150 mils of fluid out of our blood. But over the course of time, that can really lead to you know, less, I guess, blood available for thermoregulation, for muscle contraction. So staying on top of hydration, our thirst sensation also changes because we have biochemical changes that mute our thirst because our, osmo- our blood osmolality, osmolality changes to make women closer to biochemical hyponatremia. So we're looking at, okay, we have a, a muted thirst sensation because from a survival standpoint, you don't want to drink in too much water because you're really close to that low blood sodium. And that's part of the progesterone's effect as well. So when we're talking about hydration, especially in the high hormone phase, you want to increase your hydration, but being very conscious of how you do it, so it's not plain water, especially during longer training sessions, uh, adding a little bit of salt to your water so you can bring in more fluid and actually pull it into the blood space, Um, but definitely not relying on thirst. We have that whole argument of drink to thirst or drink on a schedule, and that is for the first hour of exercise. But when we get into a high hormone phase, you can't really rely on thirst because it's muted. Uh, We also know that in longer endurance activities, if you were to take a fitness matched male and female, um, a man will finish with higher blood sodium levels and a woman will finish with normal to low blood sodium levels. So it becomes very important of what you're drinking as well. So, so far I've heard um, uh, higher carbohydrate during the, the low hormone phase, higher protein in the higher hormone phase, um, uh, increased in electrolytes for rehydration and no focus, not a focus on drinking when you're thirsty during the high hormone phase. Um, but then there's also a difference in terms of what sort of exercise. You already mentioned that you need to focus less on intensity during the, the during the, the high hormone phase and more on, um, uh, on, on less intense or like sort of zone two stuff. Is that what you would put during, during the high hormone phase? Uh, well, that first week after ovulation, you can do more steady state. So your upper zone two, maybe a little bit of zone three. Um, you're not doing like the three to five minute efforts at zone four, zone four, five stuff. But in those five to seven days before your period starts, it's that really low intensity. You're looking at it as a recovery week, active recovery, working on technique, working on running drills, working on um, pedal stroke efficiency, working uh, lifting under the bar to get all that technique right. And although from a cognition and reaction standpoint, the body's being perceived as being tired, if you're nailing technique when the body's in that more tired state, then when you get into that low hormone state, you can really nail the technique and really put more effort into the high intensity with really good form. So we look at it as kind of a, 
a progression where you're doing that super high intensity, really hard work in the first couple of weeks or the first two weeks where the hormones are low. Around ovulation, depending on how you feel, you can go hit a really, really hard training session, that very top end, to garner some of estrogen's um, anabolic capacity. And then you start to taper off. It's a slow, slower taper. We get more steady state into that functional fitness deload technique work right before your period starts. So some of what you just talked about reminded me. So a lot of my listeners are CrossFitters. And I know you've worked with the CrossFit population quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, but it just made me think a lot about how many women are going into the CrossFit gym five or six days a week every single week out of the month and how maybe there might be a benefit to sort of scaling back in that week before their cycle or focusing one form and maybe not pushing the intensity as much, um, which is what I think we all tend to want to do whenever we go in the gym. Um, so could you speak to just any common themes that you've seen among CrossFit athletes, um, women that maybe are common themes or, or things that maybe will help them optimize their training and performance? Yeah, there are two big things that happen with CrossFit. Well, specifically the female population in CrossFit. One, they're constantly in a low energy state. So low energy availability, which um, becomes a huge issue when they're trying to do intensity and optimize body composition. And the other, too many hard days in a row across the entire cycle. So when I'm working with CrossFit athletes, I look at, are you fueling well before and after each session? Because if we're fueling well before and after each session, and we can kind of attenuate or slow down any kind of low energy availability issues. The other thing is looking across the cycle itself, really trying to hit it and hit it hard in this first couple of weeks and around ovulation, maybe doing more strength work and less of the Metcon stuff. And then definitely the last week before the period starts, most will admit that they feel tired and slow and a bit sluggish. It's like, well, yeah, because this is what's happening from a physiological state. So if we look at how a typical CrossFit class works, where you have your strength and then your Metcon, we look at the strength as doing uh, more technique work, lighter weight, heavier or higher reps. So you're really getting like the ass to grass kind of forms of squats mm-hmm. and really focusing on um, core and just really encompassing all the functional fitness that goes with it. And then for the met kind, it's not lifting as much or using as heavy as weights as you normally would. Again, it's looking on how fast can you go through it with lighter weight, maintaining form and technique. So giving a directive focus for each of those four weeks really helps them understand what's going on instead of just showing up to the class and saying, okay, Mm -hmm. what are we doing today? I'm going to go as hard as possible. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you can't go to the class every day. It's just having a specific intent about how you're going to approach that training. Exactly. Exactly. It's like having a dedicated deload week or two every month, kind of. I mean, like yeah. I, I, that's the that's the closest thing I can relate it to, like for my own personal training. It's like actually like consciously putting in some deload there and and focus on technique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of, um, I got to laugh because you'll see all these people that are are doing all the kipping pull-ups and then if they had to do a strict pull-up, they can't, right? (laughs) Or butterfly pull-ups. And then they can't do any of the strict moves because they're not strong enough. So Mm -hmm. I look at the deload or the functional work is looking at, well, let's see, instead of doing butterfly pull-ups, let's do strict pull-ups. Let's do really good core work where we're doing hollow holds instead of um, like toes to bar. 
So it's really pulling them back and then they realize what some of the weaknesses are and working on that in the deload without a lot of the heavy weights involved. Then again, it transfers over into the low hormone weight for the higher intensity. They have better control and better strength. So then they progress a lot faster. Has it, has it been y'all's experience that women seem to respond to these changes differently? There's a lot of variability from, from woman to woman about how affected they are by the, the hormone cycle. Is that, cause that's what I've seen in my patients. Is that true across the board? Definitely true. And it, a lot of it has to do with the ratios of estrogen progesterone. Um, it becomes more apparent in perimenopause, many perimenopausal women when they become a little bit more estrogen dominant. And, you know, across the board, naturally cycling women, they'll have anovulatory cycles, maybe two or three a year. And so the ratios are always a little bit changing. And so you can't compare woman to woman. You have to look at woman's cycle to woman's cycle to woman's cycle to see how the changes occur across their cycles. Because yes, I mean, like some women will have horrible months of heavy cramping and then two months later, they don't. So you kind of look and go, okay, well, what happened in that that really heavy cramping, were you under a lot of stress, were you low energy, poor sleep, um, do you have a, you know, a period of time where you're drinking more alcohol? So just really kind of keeping track to, so that you can help mitigate some of the signs and symptoms that happen with really bad periods. And the other thing is when someone's tracking and they start to see this patterning of every other month having really heavy bleeding, well, maybe there is something going on that, that's causing a little bit of that mehranja or, you know, something that needs to be addressed. So that's why I'm like tracking your cycle is so powerful because it gives you really good objective data then to come to you as a physician to be like, Hey, I'm having these issues and this is what I found, or these are the things that I've found. Um, we find it in concussion recovery for some of our female athletes where they get the return to play because all the scopes are based on what the data is for men. And then a couple of uh, months down the line, they're having all of these recurring symptoms. And a lot of times it, it occurs around ovulation or during the late um, luteal phase when the hormones are up. And we're just starting to see this relationship between BDNF, gut microbiome, and poor concussion recovery. And that stuff isn't discussed because it's not as prevalent in the male population as it is in the female population. And in, unless you're tracking your cycle, you wouldn't be able to pick that out. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I hadn't heard about um, that at all with regard to concussions in females. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you just started touching a little bit on um, perimenopause and postmenopause. I'd like to dig into that a little bit further because that's obviously a huge topic. And you talked about how the hormone phases change in the premenopausal stage, but can you talk a little bit more about how the physiology changes through peri and postmenopause? And then what are some of the considerations that women should be taking during that time? Yeah, so I think perimenopause is actually something not a lot of people talk about. Um, and it starts to happen you know, in the late 40s about five or six years before menopause actually hits. So just for listeners sake, I'll do the, the full definition of perimenopause is uh, four to five years before menopause. And menopause is actually one point in time that marks 12 months of no periods. And then after that is postmenopause. So we always go, well, menopause is just one date on the calendar. So we kind of just, 
want to remove that from the conversation because it confuses so many people. So we talk about perimenopause and those four to six years before that one point in time on the calendar. This is where women will go, they might still be regular in their cycles, but they're not regular in their hormone ratios. So they'll start saying, well, I'm not recovering well, I'm putting on body fat. I feel like I woke up squishy overnight, I'm not able to put on lean mass, I can't sleep very well. Some may or may not have vasomotor symptoms, um, and it might not even happen until maybe the year before that one point in time of menopause. So in the early onset or the time leading up to that one point, that menopause point, women become more estrogen dominant because there's less or there's more anovulatory cycles, so there's less progesterone. Um, they might have heavier bleeding because of that. And from a metabolic standpoint, you're losing the impetus to use and store carbohydrates, so women become more insulin resistant. Um, they're losing the stimulus for lean mass development and muscle protein synthesis because estrogen with some input from progesterone really um, stimulates the satellite cell for, for muscle protein synthesis and you lose that impetus. So we start looking at, well, we need to look at dietary and, and uh, exercise changes in order to take the place of what these hormones used to do. So we know that you really need to start looking at lifting heavy and not high reps. You wanna lift heavy to get that stimulus for lean mass development. You wanna do high intensity work so that there are metabolic changes happening within the cell from an epigenetic aspect of that high intensity so you're not relying on progesterone and estrogen to help with the carbohydrate uptake and insulin um, tolerance. And then we look at things like hydration, um, the cereal fat. So again, the high intensity work helps reduce the impetus to put on that the cereal abdominal fat and staying hydrated across the board. We also know that when you increase protein intake in those years leading up to menopause as well, it really helps with body composition. And then when we get to postmenopause, it's the same idea, but we know all the body composition changes really happen in those years leading up to menopause. It's not that you can't do changes after menopause at that postmenopause stage, but if you have the wherewithal to put them into play before menopause hits, you're better off. But when you hit that postmenopause state, again, it's not the long, slow distance. I see a huge uptake of ultra runners and ultra and distance ultra distance athletes um, when they hit menopause because the body is really, really good at using and storing fat and going slow because we lose that neuromuscular connection for fast twitch and plyometric and jumping and power. When we lose estrogen and progesterone, again, we've lost um, the ability for lean mass development. We go back to the sex differences and fat metabolism and utilization. So then we are already predisposed to using and storing fat really well. And then because you can't hit that top end, you've lost that ability to hit that top end, it becomes that sweet spot to go long and slow. So when we're in that postmenopause state and we're looking to not be uh, having more of a cereal fat, more body fat, we want more lean mass, we want to be powerful, we definitely have to change training. None of that long, slow stuff, none of that 80, 70 to 80% zone. We want to be the top, top end and the very, very low end, that really significant difference so that you're doing high intensity work or really good recovery work, but not that middle bit. 
because that middle bit doesn't help much at all. It increases cortisol that your body can't handle, stimulates you to put on more belly fat. It definitely doesn't help with lean mass and it keeps you slow. So we look at doing plyometric work. We look at doing um, that high intensity interval training. Even if you are an endurance athlete, even if you are running a 50K or 100K, uh, you want to do the high intensity interval work. And then maybe once every 10 days, putting in one of those long, slow runs, but making it really, really, really low intensity time on the feet kind of and increasing protein because we need higher protein doses as we get older to help with that lean mass development, also with cognition and reaction time. So we see studies that say, oh, 20 grams of protein, they don't really work in postmenopausal women because it doesn't even touch the threshold that we're looking for. We're looking for 30 to 40 grams post-exercise of a high quality whey protein. So you're looking at that three and a half to five grams of leucine, one to trigger it in the brain before it gets to the muscle. So there's all these little things that start to add up that all of a sudden you have a woman who's coming to you who's 52 and going, I don't know what happened. I got squishy overnight. I'm tired. I'm slow. Um, my blood pressure is up. My um, blood sugar is up. And it has to do with this hormone flux. But we know that there are specific interventions from a dietary and a, an exercise standpoint that will counter that. And do you find that if women start doing these things in the perimenopausal phase, that that has any impact on menopausal symptoms, like, you know, like hot flashes or problems with sleep or things like that, just by changing the training and the protein intake? For sure, for sure, yeah. So there is definitely, a, from the epidemiological research, looking at the fitter you are, the less menopausal symptoms you have. So it downgrades vasomotor symptoms. Um, it helps, you know, part of that also is the night sweats that perturbs sleep. We also look at a lot of sleep hygiene and uh, because we have this temperature shift and we know that in order to get into that slow wave reparative sleep, you have to be able to drop your temperature. And one of the issues with perimenopause and, and postmenopause is that you lose that temperature gradient. So we look at, um, you know, having cold cherry juice to drop the core temperature and being able to get into a good sleep. Some women are starting to use adaptogens, so they're using rhodiola or ashwagandha to help um, mitigate some of the cortisol stress that's happening to allow them to get into better sleep and more parasympathetic responses. Um, but when you're looking from higher protein intake and higher intensity, it counters that cortisol. And when you do high, high intensity and then you drop it to really low intensity, your body is able to have more of a response to the variability. So you're seeing better improvements in heart rate variability, more parasympathetic response. And that's the key point for peri and postmenopause is being to activate that parasympathetic response mm -hmm. uh, instead of being constantly in that sympathetic drive where you can't actually relax. You can't get out of that anxiety. You can't get out of that stressed state. And it it kind of feeds forward. If you're always in that state, you're going to constantly keep reminding your body to be in that state. If you do high, high stuff, good protein, low, low stuff, your body understands these two different stressors and can really activate that parasympathetic to get into some good sleep. Wow, that's great. And it seems like by doing a lot of these things, you're really getting to the root cause of a lot of the symptoms and maybe able to avoid some of the other interventions like hormone replacement therapy or um, having to use medications to treat the symptoms. Yeah. 
Exactly. And there is, I mean, as physicians, you guys will know that there is a time and a place for menopausal hormone therapy if it's mm -hmm. really super bad. But a lot of women are just on the cusp and they divert and try to go to that because that's what they think is going to help. But when they change up their training and their nutrition, they're like, oh, wait, I don't have to use HRT. I can just keep doing what I'm doing in this new stance because it's working for me. And that's, to me, that's one of the amazing things that your body responds so well that now you don't need this external, um, I guess, boost to help kind of placate things that you can take care of it on your own. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of women want too, is, is to be able to really allow the body to do what it, what it's intended to do. Yeah. Um, another, just a big sort of phase that we haven't touched on yet is pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and I know, especially for my listeners, this is a big topic. A lot of them are CrossFitters and training through um, pregnancy and postpartum. Do you have any um, specific considerations for that time period with regard to training or nutrition? So when we look at like a fit athlete coming in um, to pregnancy, you don't want to, and I get a little bit of backlash for this, and I'll explain. You don't want to follow the general guidelines that are put out by the OBGYN and the, um, all the various mm -hmm. position stands that talk about exercise and fitness for women during pregnancy, because they're based on women who don't like to exercise or come from a very recreational type. So if you're looking at a very fit athlete coming into pregnancy, you just keep doing what you're doing because your body inherently will tell you that you can't go anaerobic because there are specific biochemical changes that happen that won't allow you to go anaerobic. Um, and then we're talking about like um, Valsalvin maneuver and lifting heavy weights, just being very conscious in form and technique, which you've worked on because you've been deloading up to this point. <laughs> um, so when you're looking at what are you doing during your training as you're pregnant, you're really listening inherently to your body, but most of all, really being conscious of form, technique, working on pelvic floor, um, because that's one of the things that really, you really need to have control the pelvic floor muscles postpartum, because that's what takes so long to get back. And then in the postpartum period, where you wait six weeks to get the okay to start exercising again, it's not about doing nothing for those six weeks. It's about building some more aerobic capacity, doing some um, functional fitness work. But as a new mom with sleep deprivation, being very cognizant again that you you yourself have to recover. So don't be so hard on yourself. And again, every person is a little bit different. Even every pregnancy is different. So from a, a standpoint, from a physiological standpoint, it's understanding that, yes, you have hormones that are definitely going to affect you, relaxin, oxytocin. There are some women who um, drop milk, breastfeeding, and vomit and get nauseous from oxytocin. So it's just being very conscious that these things can affect you. Mm -hmm. And staying on top of the hydration, a lot of women feel like they can't eat. So this is where smoothies come into play. And whenever you're training, making sure that you are taking care of your fueling needs before and after. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, things that came up on a podcast a few weeks ago was the understanding that when you're exercising and you cause a little hypoxia to the placenta and the developing fetus, that actually benefits the fetus. Because that little bit of hypoxia increases the vascularization of the placenta. So then at rest, the fetus gets more blood flow. 
There's also a lot of research out there that shows that that kind of hypoxic and stress to the developing fetus causes epigenetic changes to make them able to sustain more stress. So when they're born, their body is able to sustain more stress and have better metabolic outcomes, which means that the baby has less of a predisposition becoming an obese adult. So there are lots and lots of benefits from the fetal point of view for keeping up exercise while you're pregnant. Far cry from the three to five days a week of 20 minutes of soft walking, basically. <laughs> I know. I was pregnant at the same time as one of my teammates, and we were both racing bikes professionally. And she was deemed to be high risk um, towards the end of her pregnancy, but she was so afraid to do anything that she did the whole three to five days a week, 20 minutes of just walking, developed preeclampsia. She had gestational diabetes, all of these kinds of things. And that put her in the high risk category. Whereas I was like, that, <laughs> I mean, I just keep <laughs> doing what I'm doing. Um, but I also had complications with being nauseous all the time. The only time I felt good was when I was um, actually moving. So that's when I really started looking for the literature on athletes for pregnancy. And all you have are anecdotal and case studies because you can't get ethics. So when you're looking at a review of all the case studies, it seems those athletes who keep doing what they're doing from and modifying according to their own individual needs have less complications during the pregnancy, less complications during childbirth, and have a, a really well two-term baby. And then those that tend to not follow what they're inherently used to and become unfit have more complications. It's a compl complicated area for sure. I mean, hard to know how much of that mm -hmm. came from exercise, but yeah. certainly I think, I think we're all on the same page that we would suggest a higher level of activity than, than currently recommended by, you know, the mm -hmm. um, OBGYN Academy. Um, yeah. real, real quick, I want to, I want to pick your brain about something because I've been struggling with this for a while with my patients, um, my female patients. And that is this concept. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called fasting. It's all the rage these days. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, clearly some benefits um, in general to, I think, to, to human beings. There appears to be some significant metabolic benefits. There may be some longevity benefits, but I struggle with fasting in, in women, um, especially trying to figure out how to manage it through the different cycles, the different hormonal cycles, and, and to try not to put them in a situation of red S or relative energy deficiency syndrome. Do you have any recommendations on how this should look for the female athlete specifically? Because I think that's the group in my mind that's the most challenging to manage. Yeah, first, don't fast as a woman. <laughs> I'm going to say this um, in all seriousness, right? So we look at the literature out there on fasting, and yes, there is stuff about autophagy and longevity. But there was a study that came out last week, in fact, that was looking at the differences between um, exercise with fasting and just fasting or exercise versus fasting. And if you exercise at a high intensity, then you garner more benefits from autophagy and telomere length than you would if you were fasting. And definitely fasting plus exercise puts you in that relative energy deficiency risk because you can't make up the calories and your body's already in a catabolic state. It's worse for women because of kisspeptin. So for listeners, kispeptin is a neuropeptide or hormone that's responsible for turning on your endocrine system, so to speak. And it's very sensitive in women. So it, the threshold for downregulation or turning kispeptin off 
that threshold is way more sensitive in women than in men. So when we look at it from a, a REDS point of view or low energy availability point of view, you'll see men who are taking in 15 calories per kilogram of, of fat-free mass and still getting away with stuff. But if women are in there, they're completely messed up. Like their thyroid's down, they're amenorrheic, they're putting on body fat, they're fatigued. It's because of kisspeptin. So if we put fasting into play, fasting puts women into a low caloric and, and um, nutrient state. So kisspeptin is already on the verge of being downturned. And then you add exercise into that fasting mix. So you're exercising in a fasted state, it perturbs kisspeptin. And we know within four days that you will start to downregulate your thyroid as well. So when we're looking at the overall health of the athlete, and we want to encompass this autophagy and the work of the telomere length that fasting offers, we look at women and say, don't fast, fuel for what you are doing, because exercise in itself is a fasted state. You're depleting, and your body is like, okay, I need to do something. And so in the recovery state, this is where you have a lot of autophagy. For men, it's a touch and go. Like There is some benefit for fasting for men. It's not as critical for men to be completely fueled for their training, especially resistance training. But for women, completely different story because it comes down to that kisspeptin response. I like it. That's, no, that's very good. helpful. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a challenging area, and I, I like that we can break it down specifically to the female athlete and say just stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm the one who's now going on to, you know, like all the listservs and of all these studies and they're talking about it and there's reviews about how good fasting is. I'm like, where's the study on women? And the point amount, I'm like, yeah, what these say is not good for women, but they don't pull it out. So now it's up to us to go and really point it out and be like, yeah, it's not good for women, not good for women. And that's an important message because it's so... Um it's out there. I mean, everybody is talking about fasting in one way or another. And so it's important for people to be informed about what, what impacts it can have on women. Yeah. And you'll probably get a whole bunch of people going, but wait a second, fasting works for me. Fasting works for me. I've had a lot of people like backlash me and, you know, the trolls on social media going, I can't believe you're saying fasting doesn't work. It's like, well, yeah, it'll work for anyone for two to three months, but then you look at the long-term effects and women take a big hit after about that two to three month phase. Interesting. Well, as we wrap up, I have one last question for you, um, just to get at sort of your highest yield in advice. If you could go back, knowing what you know now about the sex differences in training and nutrition, if you could go back to tell maybe your 22 year old self, um, a couple of things that would have the biggest impact on your training and your health? What do you think those things would be? Well, when I was 22, I was, um, I was amenorrheic from too much training, not enough protein, too little sleep. So I'd go back and be like, look, you don't have your period. You're not a healthy athlete. You want to do better. You want to get on that podium. You need to eat more, train less, really, really separate the high intensity from the low intensity and get your periods back and then you know like all of those things like i wish i had known in my early 20s mm -hmm. and that's such an important message because i think when you're a young athlete you just want to do more and more and more and you want to do everything harder and and you're always trying to push the boundaries and so being able to actually understand that sometimes less is more is really yeah. really hard 
it is hard and we get bombarded by all of the all of the social media messaging and stuff is like train hard train hard train hard go hard go long go fast mm-hmm. but no one talks about train hard recover harder mm-hmm. right and they the whole aspect of recovery becomes a lost I I worked with uh, professional cyclists who on their recovery day will eat maybe a thousand calories because they think I'm not expending anything. I was like, wait a second, you're, you're up and even watching Netflix, you need more than that. So Mm -hmm. it's an education standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen that, you know, CrossFit as a sport is still young, but I think we've seen that among the top CrossFit athletes where years ago, a lot of them were not paying a lot of attention to recovery or even nutrition. And now you talk to the top athletes, they understand I need to be eating more. They need to be eating more carbohydrates. Um, they're balancing their recovery time with their training time. Um, so it's, it's definitely not sustainable if, if you try to do it, you know, by pushing the boundaries all the time. No, not at all. And I'll, I, I know that you want to wrap up, but I'll finish with one of our most recent case studies with uh, three CrossFit women. Mm-hmm. And they were all um, trying to increase their Olympic lifts. And I was looking at what they were eating and they were all around a thousand to 1500 calorie deficit. And their resting metabolic rate was sitting around the 1000 K mark where we really want to see the 1700 mark. So over the course of about six months, we increased their food and we were able to boost their resting metabolic rate. They lost on average 4% body fat, which is huge for women. And they were able to recover well, and they increase their um, one rep max by an average of eight to 10%. Wow. And we had a big bulk of no training in there. And they're like, mm-hmm. I can't believe this. So some of the stuff that they were doing um, towards the end of the recovery process would originally have taken them months and months of really heavy, heavy, hard training. And within the course of six weeks, they were superseding what their expectations were. And so when they look back and they're like, wait, I'm eating more. I'm training smarter, which is less. My body fat fat is down. My lean mass is up and my periods are back. Like, why did we not know about this? Or <laughs> just keep talking about it. Shouldn't be a secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. And that's a great message. I think that so many people need to hear. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. I have really appreciated everything that you've shared with us and like we said at the beginning, your work is so important and I'm so excited that it's really getting out there and that I'm hearing about it everywhere because that means people are paying attention. And they're starting to talk about it. So thank you for everything that you do. Definitely. Thank you guys too, for pushing the message and, and pushing it out there. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and this conversation with Stacy. You can learn more about her at her website, drstacysims.com. That's D-R-S-T-A-C-Y-S-I-M-S.com. Or you can follow her on Instagram at drstacysims. As a reminder, you can learn more about wild health by listening to episode 172 of the podcast with Dr. Mike Mallon and Dr. Matt Dawson, or you can check out their wild health podcast on your favorite platform. Stay tuned for more of these Pursuing Wild Health episodes and a big announcement about the future of the podcast in the new year.